Please pray with me. Eternal Father, you have gathered us at this time to hear your word. Please move in our hearts so that we may hear and respond according to your will. For Jesus' sake, amen. Are you familiar with the 2006 movie Click? In the movie, Michael, who's played by Adam Sandler, seems like he has it all. He's got a wife, a kids, a good career, but Michael seems like he can never find the time to spend with his family because his job continuously takes him away. That's until he meets an eccentric inventor played by Christopher Walken, who gives him a remote control to control time. At first, he uses the the remote control to fast-forward through some of the boring parts of his life. But pretty quick, he starts using it to skip larger and larger parts of his life. And before he knows it, the remote is actually in control. And he has missed years of being a husband, father, and employee. I bet that every one of you have had times in your life that you wish you could fast forward or rewind to or hit the mute on the mother-in-law button. But we know know that things like this only happen in movies. Time is the topic of our time together today. And this morning we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. And as you turn there in your Bible or on your smartphone, let me tell you what's happened in the book up to this point. This book contains the words of the preacher, or in some translations, the teacher. Traditionally, he's believed to be King Solomon because he says that he's a son of David, he's wise, he's wealthy, and he's king over Jerusalem. The preacher poses a question at the beginning of the book. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And he proceeds to answer with a a poem. The poem looks at creation, which never stops moving, but never gets anywhere. The sun comes up and the sun goes down. The sea never fills from the rivers running into it. And he says, so are people. Generations come and go. Human life looks like it's going somewhere, but it never gets anywhere. There's nothing new under the sun. Time erases everyone and everything they do. The preacher then turns and sets his gaze to answer the question with pleasure. He pursues humor, alcohol, building projects, sex, wealth, you have it, to extreme proportions. He doesn't deny himself any pleasure. But at the end, he looks back and he despairs because of his conclusion, which is there's no gain for a man's toil. There's no edge that a person gets under the sun. Time comes for us all. All is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And his advice is that we should eat and drink and enjoy our toil. But this seems unfitting. With such a pessimistic conclusion, how can we say we should eat and drink and enjoy our toil if there is no gain, if there's no edge, and if all is meaningless? The preacher turns to our passage to start answering this question. Let me read it to you. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, 
A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So in our time together, we're going to look at the preacher's poem and then consider his two reflections. So it's going to go poem, reflection one, and reflection two. From these three, we'll discover our big idea and then a couple applications. So first, we'll consider the poem in verses 1 through 9. Did you know that there's a website called topverses.com? It's a website which ranks the popularity of Bible verses, and it ranks the first verse in our passage the most popular in the whole book. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. I guess this shouldn't be surprising. Like today, this passage is often preached around New Year's. It's also preached at many funerals, Christian and non-Christian funerals. The poem also makes up the lyrics for the popular song Turn, Turn, Turn by Pete Seeger, which was made famous by the birds. For everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. The reason that this poem is so frequently used by Christians and non-Christians is because it speaks to human life. For every person under the sun, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time for planting and a time for uprooting, and so on. Often this passage is misinterpreted to be a guide to help us discern when is the proper time to act and that everything can be beautiful in its own unique way. But we're going to see today that interpreting the passage like that misses the point and actually prevents us from enjoying life. I'm going to make four observations from the poem, and this is going to help us understand the preacher's reflections which come next. My observations will be brief, so stick with me, because they will help us understand what the preacher is doing. The first observation we need to make is about the subject of the poem. What is the poem speaking about? The subject is not killing or healing, mourning or dancing, but rather it's about time. The first line makes this clear. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. The Hebrew word for time is then repeated 28 times after this introduction. So the, it's very clear that the topic is, is time. There's a time to be born and a time to die. A time for blank and a time for blank. If we ask what is this poem talking about, we can answer it's talking about time. The rest of the observations say something about time. 
The second observation is that times are specific and appointed. The two words in the first line, season and time, refer to specific times, specific days or hours. Who appoints them? The preacher doesn't tell us. But he says that there is purpose to these times. They're not random. We may ask if, all, if these times are appointed, we may ask which times are appointed. And this is the third observation. The poem is about appointed times. The first line helps us answer this question again. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. From the time appointed to be born and the time appointed to die and every season in between, the poem tells us that every time is in view. Every time is appointed. The final observation is about the pattern of the poem. There have been many attempts to find a pattern among these appointed times, but many theologians have given up on this endeavor. One theologian said, the rhythmic character of the catalog gives the initial impression impression of a discernible pattern, yet the pattern, if there ever was one, escapes most interpreters. The pattern to the times in this poem escape us. Indeed, if you try to find one, it will be like chasing after the wind. These four observations will help us understand the poem. We can say regarding time that all times and seasons are appointed, although it may be difficult to see the pattern. At the end of the poem, the preacher concludes by asking the same question he did at the beginning of the book. What gain has the worker from his toil? And he assumes the same answer. There is no gain, no edge from the worker's toil. All times are appointed and the pattern escapes us. Morning is overtaken by dancing, and silence is ended by talking. Good times come and go. At the end of it all, death follows life, and the worker has nothing to show from his toil. No lasting significance is left. This is a depressing conclusion. But it comes from looking at life from one point of view. But in Reflections 1 and 2, the preacher proposes seeing it a different way. So let's turn there and look there now. Reflection 1 is in verses 10 through 13. Let me read that again. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Before I moved here to go to Trinity, I used to oversee a geek squad inside of a Best Buy store. I had moved through the ranks starting as a seasonal employee, and after a few years, I was promoted to Deputy of Counterintelligence, which is their fun title for the geek squad manager. Through that experience, I had worked each job role, I had helped clients, I had fixed technology, and filled out more forms than I could count. But as a manager, I had a new perspective. I could see the whole operation. I saw it all. And this is the preacher's experience. I told you before that he pursued humor, alcohol, building projects, and wealth on monumental scales. In his own words, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Not only did he experience it all, But as king over Jerusalem, he could see it all. 
He was in a good position to see what people did in the city. And this is how he can say, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's here that the preacher also tells us who appoints the times and seasons we read about in the poem. He said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Some translations have, he's made everything right in its time. And the idea here is not that God makes everything beautiful to look at, but that he appoints the times. He appoints every time and every season. He makes them right. He makes them beautiful at the right time. God is telling the story and controlling the times of human life. But there's something else that God does according to the preacher. Starting halfway through verse 11, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In a passage all about specific times, appointed times, the preacher introduces a contrast. Eternity. Eternity is the opposite of appointed times. It's to transcend time. It's to have a sense of timelessness. And we see that God has placed this eternity into the human heart. All you have to do is look around at normal human life to see this. On a romantic date, we want time to stop because we want that moment to last forever. We use makeup to help us look young forever. We have 401ks to help us stay wealthy forever. We even keep the final chapters of human life hidden away, sometimes consigning the elderly to nursing homes and speaking of death in pleasantries, like resting in peace or going to a better place. We do all of these things to hide from the fact that we are not eternal. Eternity is in our hearts, but the preacher reveals that the same God who put it there has limited our view. He has put eternity into our hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has given us a desire for a wide-angle lens, but he's given us a telephoto lens. We want to see, understand, and impact eternity, but at best, we can hardly discern the chapter that God has us in. If God moves time and put eternity into our hearts, but has limited our understanding, we're left with two options. First, we can be frustrated with our lack of understanding and fight to find our own meaning. Or the other option is to have the point of view which trusts God's control over time. This is the point of view that the preacher recommends, and it's the point of view which leads to joy. His conclusion here, starting at verse 12, was, I perceived that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Rather than be upset with what God hasn't given us, the preacher says that we should enjoy what God has given us. Acknowledging our limits, the limits that God has put over us, and giving up on trying to control the impossible, the fight to control time, is the posture we need to enjoy God's gifts. God is not a cosmic party pooper. He is not raining down wrath on us by doing this. He has limited our understanding of time for our good to help us focus on what he set right before us and to stop us from fighting against what we can't control. It's like in the movie Bruce Almighty. Bruce 
believes that God is doing a poor job overseeing his life. And he says that he can do better. And when Morgan Freeman, who plays God in this movie, gives Bruce control, the city that Bruce lives in soon spins out of control and his life falls into chaos. God redirects our view to the gifts that he set right before us, to do good, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy our toil. God stands over time, and he's placed us inside of time. Accepting our limited understanding of time allows us to trust that only God controls time, and then we can enjoy his gifts. And this is the first reflection the preacher makes. Trusting that only God controls time allows us to enjoy God's gifts. Trusting that only God controls time allows us to enjoy his gifts. The preacher's second reflection comes from verses 14 through 15. I'm going to read that again for us. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Throughout our passage, a tension has been building that is easy to miss. There's a Hebrew word that appears several times throughout the passage. It's the word for to do or to make. It's the word standing behind worker in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Or we could say what gain has the doer from his toil? And remember the answer. The answer is nothing. But look how it's used for God. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And a little bit later, and yet so that he, who is man, cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. God has done it so that people fear before him. When you look at what humans do, what humans make, what they get for the toil that they do, the answer is nothing. When you set it alongside what God does, making everything beautiful in its time, God does things from the beginning to the end, his work endures forever, the contrast is clear. What humans do produces no gain, no edge under the sun. The march of time makes this so, but it's not the case with God. Not only does God control time, but what God does endures forever. Nothing can be added or taken from it. The preacher sees the difference between the chasings of human beings and the eternal actions of God and tells us why God does it this way. He has done it so that people fear before him. If you think about it, this is a really astounding claim. God has done it. God has made it so people's work produces no gain. He has given us business to do under the sun, but erases it by the marching of time. We want things that we do to have lasting impact, but he has placed that outside of our limits. God does this so people fear before him. One theologian said it like this, the short-lived vanities of this world reveal all the more clearly the enduring work of God to which nothing can be added. The absolute sovereignty of God and his purpose is meant to bring human beings to a sense of humble reverence 
and awe of him. Fear of God involves understanding and accepting our proper place. A couple chapters later in the book, the preacher reminds us that God is in heaven and we are on earth and that it is God that you must fear. God does what he wants. God does what he wants with our lives. This might not sound good to us because we live in a very individualistic society. We want to be autonomous. We are told the American dream is yours to grab, or so the story goes. You do you. You can be everything and anything that you want to be. But this is just a cruel lie. I can't be Aaron Rodgers any more than Pastor Craig can be an opera singer. The the lie that we have control over our own lives, that we create our own purpose, actually enslaves us. I remember Pastor Tim asked in one of his sermons a while back, when is a train most free? Or when is a boat most free? The point he was making was that if a train says, I'll go where I want to go and do what I want to do, it will soon derail. A boat is not free to live out its purpose when it's aground. Trains and boats are made for a specific purpose, and restrictions are put over them by their creators to help them not miss that purpose. When they try to live outside of these restrictions, they soon derail or go aground. And the same is true for people. The same is true for us. Our creator has put restrictions over us. He's done this so that we know our purpose. And when we accept these limits, we find and can live out our purpose. This is one of the main conclusions of the whole book. At the very end of the book, the author writes, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the full duty of man. If this is the duty of man, if this is where we can find our purpose, we should be thankful that God uses time to remind us of our place, to to make people fear before him. And this is the preacher's second reflection. God sets his enduring work before the vanity of ours to remind us of our place. God sets his enduring work before ours, before the vanity of ours, to remind us of our place. And the preacher drives this last reflection home with the final line, which says, That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. God sees everything that was, is, and will be. God's view is eternal. The things that we chase after are driven away, but it says that God is the one who seeks them. So from the poem, we know that all times and seasons are appointed, although it may be difficult to see the pattern. In the preacher's first reflection, he taught us that trusting that only God controls time allows us to enjoy God's gifts. And second, He sets his enduring work before ours, before the vanity of ours, to remind us of our place. And now I think we're ready for the main idea from this text. The main idea, God places time outside our limits so that we trust and fear him. God places time outside of our limits so that we trust and fear him. Before we leave, I want to leave you with two applications from this text. The first application Stop living in a different time or season. 
Some of you may be living for the past. There was a better time, a time in which you had more, a time of laughing, of dancing, of embracing. Maybe you're living in your glory days. But living in the past will always prevent you from seeing what God has put right before you. If you're in a season of weeping and mourning, or it's a time of loss for you, you'll be tempted to live in the past, in the time before the pain has come. But I want to remind you that God is in control of the times of your life. He makes everything right at the right time. Pain demands to be felt. And rather than live in the past, we must trust that God is going to make it right. We can avoid pain a little while by living in the past, but sooner or later, we all need to face it. Sometimes our greatest seasons of growth are our greatest seasons of pain. See if it's true in your life. Has God made times of sorrow right in their time? Have you seen growth out of pain? I know I have. Often we refuse to believe that God will make everything right in its time. This is what the Apostle Paul was trying to encourage the Romans to believe when he said, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Friends, don't miss what God is doing right now in your life because you're living in the past. But others of you might be living for the weekend. You can miss the joys of life if you're living for the future as well. If the week is just an obstacle to get to the party, then you're blind to what blessings might be right before you. One author wrote this, Ordinarily, we eat and drink simply as fuel to enable us to keep going with our work. Ordinarily, we work not just to earn a living, but to find satisfaction and purpose, and very likely to make a reputation for ourselves and to achieve success. What if the pleasure of food is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? What if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous? Maybe you're a student and you're counting the days until graduation or the next chapter. But don't forget, we have some of the best schools in the world. Don't miss the blessings that are right before us. Maybe you're single and you're looking for that time of marriage. I've talked to married people who miss some of the blessings and gifts that single life gave. The point is this, that each one of these seasons are a gift. Maybe it's the terrible twos or when the kids are out of the house. For those of you uh, employees, make it, maybe it's the next promotion or retirement. Remember, God appoints these times and seasons of your life, and he makes them beautiful at the right time. None of us even know if there'll be a next season. The same author I quoted a moment ago finished that quote by saying, what if it is death that is meant to show us how to live? When Michael in the movie Click had fast-forwarded through most of his life, he realized that he had missed so much. It wasn't until death was staring him in the face that he was learned to cherish all the precious times that he had missed with his family. In the movie, he got a second chance to enjoy his gifts. For us, the fact that we're not promised tomorrow ought to help us enjoy God's gifts in the moment. The second and final application is to accept your place. Fear God. The preacher reminds us that although God has set eternity in our hearts, we cannot know what he's doing from beginning to end. 
He's also said that God's work endures forever and nothing we do can add or take from it. Accepting your place in God's plan means you accept his place as creator. If life is a story, you are just a word, and he is the author. A word means nothing by itself, but in the hands of the author, it will be used in just the right way. Our response must be, yes, Lord, use this letter. We need to be honest about ourselves, that we are limited creatures in the hands of an eternal God. God is in heaven, and we are on earth. God is in control, and we are not. God does what he wants, and we can't change it. But we can celebrate this because God is good. He knows that it's only by accepting our proper place that we can do good and enjoy food and work. God's restrictions are for our good and for his glory. Fear God and keep his commandments. The preacher was a wise man, but today I can tell you we can be wiser. The preacher was right that we can't know what God is doing from the beginning of the end. But today we might add that we can't know what God is doing from the beginning to the end unless he reveals it to us. The preacher lived in a different chapter of God's story than we do. We just celebrated Christmas when God revealed what he is doing from the beginning to the end. From the book of Galatians, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as son. That, was, that happened at the fullness of time. God has revealed to us the story he's telling And although we may not know how the little pieces of our life contribute to that story, we know that he's telling a great story and we can be part of it. He's revealed to us one other thing about time. He revealed to us that at a time or hour that no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, the Father will bring an end to this time and Christ will return. Those who've accepted a place in his story will taste that eternity that he put into our hearts. If you haven't yet trusted God to be the author of your life and accepted a place in the story that God is telling through Jesus Christ, the time is now. We don't know if there'll be a next time, if there'll be a next season. It's always the right time to accept what God wants to do with your life. If this is something you feel excited about or have questions about, please talk to one of us after the service. We would all love to help you accept your place in the story that God is telling through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we are amazed by you, for you see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Your plans never fail. Help us to trust how you control the times of our life and accept our place in the amazing story that you are telling. Thank you for the gifts that you give us every day. Stop us from ungratefully overlooking all that you've given us, most of all for including us in the story that you are telling through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.